It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. David Valdez has been a professional photographer for over 50 years. He's been on assignments in 75 countries and all 50 United States. He began as a military photographer and then went on to be the chief photographer for the United States Chamber of Commerce, personal photographer for the vice president and president of the United States. David managed photography for Disney and his freelance photography includes Republican National Committee, the National Park Service, Georgetown View, Franklin Pierce University, National Geographic Traveler, The Washington Post, so many things. Newsweek, USA Today, Sports Illustrated. He's currently the host of Georgetown Texas Photography Festival and was recently appointed to the Georgetown Arts and Culture Board, where he is the vice chair. You can see more about David Valdez at davidvaldezphotography.com. We're going to talk to him here today about what it's like photographing the President of the United States, his workflow while he's doing it, and all the wonderful things he's been doing since he retired from government service. This is a man who is not letting moss grow under his feet. We admire his strength, his courage, his amazing smile, and his positive outlook. Meet David Valdez. David, welcome. I am so happy to see that smiling face and to hear what I know are going to be some amazing stories from you. You've been doing this for a very long time. So let's go back to the beginning. David, as a little boy, did you have any idea that you were a visual person, that you lighted to shoot still photographs using film in that day? Did you have any inkling of that when you were a little kid? What was your creative outlet? Funny you should start at five years old because that's actually when I met my wife. We were in kindergarten together and her father and my father worked together in the military and we actually have a our kindergarten photo and, and it's a group shot. And in the photo, everybody's looking forward, but me and I'm looking over at her. That was at five. They were stationed at Pepperell Air Force Base in St. John's, Newfoundland. And from there, we got transferred to New Mexico. And uh, uh, I actually wound up growing up in Albuquerque. I did elementary, junior high, and high school there. Somewhere along the line there, my parents bought me a little Roy Rogers camera. And I started taking pictures then. When I graduated high school, I received a letter from President Nixon inviting me to join the military. So I went into the military. I signed up for the Air Force. And they said, you're going to be a photographer. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, what is that? I don't even know. So in the military, I was in for four years. They trained me as a photographer. And, and you know, we did parades and award ceremonies and plane crashes and autopsies and car wrecks. My very, 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 very first assignment was actually a car accident on the base at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And I was in the dark room. Uh, in those days, it, you know, it was all black and white, and, and I was making black and white prints in the dark room. And my sergeant came in, he was a big guy, and 
And he says, okay, Valdez, you're ready to go on your first assignment. And I said, Sarge, I, I don't think I'm ready because he was a big guy. He grabbed me by my shirt, picked me up, put me up against the wall. And he said, you have two options here. You can go on the assignment or you can go to jail. And I was like, I can do that. Go on the assignment. <laughs> yeah, go on the assignment. So I went. And from that point on, I just needed that uh, little tiny bit of confidence to go out there and, and do it. It was kind of interesting. I got in at the same time with a bunch of other guys and several of us, you know, we had to go out and just take pictures or whatever we wanted to take pictures of. And, and it was kind of interesting that when we would all come back, my photos kind of drifted to the top of the pile. It just seemed to like mine more. So that gave me maybe more assignments. I don't know. What do you think was different about the way you were shooting? Well, the very first thing you asked was about when did I know about being creative and doing that kind of thing? And I think when I was a little boy and I had my little Roy Rogers camera, it was a square format. And sometimes I, I would turn it on the diamond and I would shoot that way to just make a different photo. And sometimes I would take photos and you could see leading lines in the photo, which is not something that I was taught, but it was just something that I had in my heart and something that I saw. I think that kind of came out because I'll never forget the first time they showed me a camera, like a real professional camera. It was a four by five speed Graflex camera and had all these numbers on it and dials and oh man, I'll never learn that stuff. And once I did, then the creativity kind of came through. Just recently, there was a hurricane that was going through Florida, and I was at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And whenever we would have hurricanes back in those days, everybody in the entire base would have to go sandbag things, except for me. And I would have to go take pictures of everybody sandbagging. Oh, they would have parades, and everybody would have to march in the parade, but me. And I'd be the guy taking pictures of the parade. It was fun. Now, the, the plane crashes weren't too good. We were a training base for fighter pilots, and our base was the last stop before they would go to Vietnam. And in the center part of Florida, there's a, a bombing range called Avon Park, and they used to go down there and you know, they'd use live ammunition. And every once in a while, those guys would crash, and, and I'd have to go out there with the medical team, you know, and I'd have to photograph body parts and, and plane parts and photograph autopsies. And, you know, that was horrible stuff, you know, when you're 18, 19 years old. And sometimes today, all these decades later, sometimes that just comes and bites me. I'll see something or smell something, just kind of comes back at me, those experiences that I had. While I was in Florida, in Tampa, Walt Disney World opened up in Orlando. And I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And I remember at one point in my father's career, one year he got stationed in, in Torrance, California. And we had a chance to go to Disneyland several times. Actually saw Walt Disney on Main Street in, in the Magic Kingdom. And, and I'll never forget that. And when Disney was just opening up in Florida, it was about the time I was getting out and I, I was thinking, wow, you know, maybe I could go over there and, and get a job. But by that time, my parents had moved to Washington, D.C. 
And uh, my dad was working in the federal government. And one of the things that I always wanted to do as a young person was go to college. And, and when I was drafted right out of high school, that didn't happen. And, and so when I got in, uh, the military paid for college. And I was there in Tampa. So I went to the University of Tampa and I'd just go take one class at a time at night. And in the four years I was there, I knocked out two years of college. And I went up to uh, Washington, D.C., and I thought, well, you know, I'm 21 years old, and I, I wanted to finish college. But then it was, well, what can I get a degree in that I can immediately go get a job? And I thought, well, if I got a degree in criminology, I could become a Secret Service agent or an FBI agent or, or something like that. And so I actually started pursuing that. And I was on the GI Bill, but I was still going to night school because I wanted to work. Well, the only thing I knew how to do was photography. And so I wound up working in the federal government as a photographer. I started at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that was really an interesting experience. It was their uh, communications department. And Department of Agriculture during the Depression did all those famous photos of, of the Depression. And, and even Margaret Brooke White and famous photographers uh, were hired by the Department of Agriculture. And I got to see all of that photography. It was really uh, an eye-opener. But I was a low-grade civil servant. You know, it was my first in the federal civil service uh, system. I was there a year. And one day, the personnel guy came up to me and he said, you know, there's a photographer position with a grade promotion over at HUD. What's HUD? I don't even know. Well, that's the U.S. Department of housing and urban development. So I took the job and went over there. It was a two-man band. There was one guy in charge. He was that guy, and, and I was the other guy. And their primary function was to photograph the Secretary of HUD and the things that the Secretary did, which meant going up to Capitol Hill and photographing Senate hearings or going to events at the White House. And this time, I'm 23, 24 years old. But also FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, was a part of HUD at that time. And so since the other guy primarily covered the secretary, I did everything else. And the disasters were one of the things that I did. Fly into Boston, they had a big, huge, major snowstorm back in the 70s. And, and there was a place in, in Pennsylvania that just got Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I think it was, it got major flooding and and you know i would go and kind of reminded me of my military days going to plane crashes and it was easy to adapt to that but also this was the early 70s and hud was charged with kind of rebuilding a lot of the inner cities that had been burned during the race riots in the 60s i spent a lot of time traveling around the country going to watts and harlem and all these inner city places in, in Detroit and Philadelphia and New York City. And 90% of the time I was by myself and they'd say, well, you know, go in and go photograph these things. And, and sometimes it wasn't like the safest thing to be doing. No kidding. <laughs> you know, you'd pick up you know, maybe somebody from the local office. I know. And I remember in California, the guy that took me around actually had a sidearm and he'd say, well, you just stay with me and in front of me, never get behind me. 
And, and it's like, oh, okay. I don't understand that. Why not get behind him? Because if he couldn't see me, he couldn't protect me. So it's like, stay in front so he can keep his eye on me. Did you wear a flak jacket at all? Or did you have any protective equipment? No, I, I was young enough to think that I would live forever. And I'll never forget, this was years later at HUD down in Florida. There was a hurricane and I was with one of my colleagues, uh, Dusty Jenkins, and she's a vice president of Spotify. She and I would travel a lot together and we were in Florida and young woman and, and me, I would say to Dusty, well, keep an eye on me because I'm going to go over here and, and just let me know if you see anything going on. Well, we were out 20 or 30 feet away from our car and this guy comes walking by with a machete. And it was like, oh, man, let's get out of here. And <laughs> we did quickly. Those were just some of those things. During the disasters, I was in West Virginia, and we were kind of in the, in the woods there. There had been a huge flood and kind of went through the mountains, and there were a lot of people that lived out there. And we were hiking through and, and uh, came across uh, some guys who had a still going. And so here we are, federal employees. And this guy's got their still cooking and I've got cameras and they pulled guns on us and, and we just said, well, we're, we just backed up and got out of there. So that was, you know, another one of those things. But, um, you know, back in Washington, D.C., I would go up to Capitol Hill and I'd be one of those photographers crawling around the floor at Senate hearings and occasionally doing um, assignments at the White House. And all this time, I'm still going to the University of Maryland and College Park, Maryland, which is in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I was on campus one day and I heard these two guys talking and they said, I'm so excited. I just got my degree in, in criminology and I got a job. And I'm like, you know, oh man, what's this guy going to say? And he said, I, he said to his friend, I got a job at Wharton Penitentiary as a guard. I'm out of here. There's no way I'm going to do that for a living. And so I went back to my counselor and my counselor, uh, she directed me to journalism. A lot of the core classes for criminology and journalism were the same. And, and so I got a, a degree in journalism with a minor in radio and television production. Then I decided, well, now I want to be a photographer for the Washington Post or Time Magazine. And of course, I had like zero news experience. I had a lot of experience, but not news experience and i just started sending out resumes literally to every newspaper around the country in all of those hundreds of resumes i wound up sending one to the united states chamber of commerce which is directly across the street from the white house and they had a magazine there called nation's business it was the largest selling business magazine in the country at the time and i was the chief photographer and there was a monthly and so the first two weeks out of every month, I would travel around the country and go photograph the president of Coca-Cola or General Motors or go to Fresno, California and photograph the small businessman of the year or, and everything in between. And going back up to Capitol Hill and, and doing uh, Senate hearings and the occasional event over at the White House and being the United States Chamber of Commerce, people would come over to the chamber, you know, famous people. And so I get to photograph a lot of the DC famous people. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. 
Where are all those pictures now? Are they in the National Archives? Yes. Because the rights belong to the government, correct? That's right. And it's a funny story. Years after I left the federal government, I went to head up photography for the Walt Disney Company and the U.S. Post Office. They emailed me and, and uh, had a copy of a photo that I had taken at HUD. And it was of uh, HUD Secretary Patricia Roberts Harris. And they were doing a, uh, a postage stamp, uh, an African-American heritage series. And they had selected that photo to be a postage stamp. And they got that from the U.S. Archives. So I'm a huge fan of history and the archives, U.S. Archives, because all of that work that I did is at this second at the U.S. Archives. The 65,000 rolls of film that I shot being the president's photographer, those are, are managed by the archives at the Bush Presidential Library in College Station, Texas on the campus of Texas A&M University. So there are the archives in D.C. itself. So the National Archives have several different buildings. If I go into right. either one and search for David Valdez, I can see those pictures. And they're digitizing a lot of the, the film. The photos that I took are at the archives, U.S. archives in College Park, Maryland. There you go. Right. And it's very close to the... Uh, University of Maryland campus. And one time I was tasked when I was at HUD, I actually worked at HUD two different times. And that's part of the story. Second time I worked at HUD, they were doing a 40th anniversary of HUD. And I was producing a video for them on that. And I had to go to the US archives to do research because I knew all of these photos from the first time that I worked there. And so I go to the US archives and I go into the research room and you know, I was asking for photos, and, and you had to sign your name. And I had a bunch of boxes, and I was going through the photos. And this one guy came out, and he said, an archivist, he came out and he said, are you David Valdez, the photographer? And I said, yes. And he says, oh, wait here, wait here. And he went in the back, and he got five or six archivists, and they all came out. And he says, oh, we're huge fans of your work, and we all know about you. You know, I, I didn't really know how to respond, but, you know, it was nice that they had my work there. And, you know, it's there. That was back in the 70s, the first time that I was there. And as a photographer, it's great to know that my stuff is there. And, oh, five or six years ago, I now live in Texas and in Georgetown, Texas, which is just north of Austin, uh, kind of the suburbs of Austin. And LBJ Presidential Library is there, but right next door to the LBJ Presidential Library is the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History. Uh, about 10 years ago, they started realizing uh, Dr. Don Carlton, who's the director of the Briscoe Center, started realizing that news photos become history. Absolutely. And so he started reaching out to news photographers, mostly from Washington, D.C., and asking them to put their archives there. Well, I was one of the people that they invited. And I said, well, you know, a lot of my stuff's already at the archives. I do have a whole lifetime of stuff that I've done. And so I'm a, one of the donors of, of the rest of my life's work at the Briscoe Center for American History in Austin, Texas. And for a year or two, I was actually on their board, which was kind of fun to have a 
an opportunity to do that. Once I was at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, December 1983, I was on an assignment to photograph Barbara Bush, who at the time was the wife of the vice president, and she was decorating the national Christmas tree. And while we were waiting for her to arrive, Scott Applewhite from the Associated Press, photographer who is famous in his own right, he's Scotty Shots on Instagram, and, and he's, it's kind of funny. He's become so famous that photographers photograph him. And they say, oh, I spotted Scott Applewhite. And they put it on Scotty shots. He's got his fame going there. But he told me that Vice President Bush's photographer was leaving. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds interesting. I do that. And I did a little research and found out that the Vice President's photographer reported to the Vice President's press secretary. And that was Shirley Green. And she was a Texan. And, and most of the Bush staff were Texans. And I was born in Texas. And you know, that's my Texas as my heritage. And so she invited me over. I and mean, I was literally across the street working at the U.S. Chamber. And, and so I went in and I interviewed with her and she looked at my photos. And, and it was really, she talked to me more than she actually looked at the photos. Then uh, she invited me back to interview with the chief of staff, a guy by the name of Admiral Dan Murphy. That interview, he beat me up. He was like pushing my buttons and on purpose. He was testing you. He was. He was. And I grew up in a military family. I'd been in the military. I knew how to say yes, sir, no, sir. When I left there, I was like, this guy hates me. There's no way I'm going to ever get this job. But I passed the test. So then I got called back to interview with Vice President George Bush. And this was in the old executive office building. The vice president has a couple offices, a ceremonial office in, in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, and then physically in the White House, just down the hall from the Oval Office. But we were interviewed in the Executive Office Building. And I go in, and he was very kind and gentle and talking to me, telling me that I would be with him in public and in private, and that we had to have this trust and this relationship. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, nobody has said David, uh, we'd like to offer you the job to be the vice president's photographer, and here's the salary. When he's talking to me, when the vice president's talking to me, that's what's going through my head. It's like, well, what is this pay? <laughs> and so I had to ask, because in his mind, I had the job. So I said, well, do you know what the salary is? He said, you know, I have no idea. Let's call Admiral Murphy and ask him. And Admiral Murphy's office is right next door, and it's the old executive office building. The, the walls are that thick, and, and, um, and the vice president picked up the phone, and he said, Hey, Dan, I'm in here with Dave Valdez, and he's asking me what the salary is. And through the walls, I could hear him screaming, saying, What? He's talking to you about salary? And I was like, Oh, oh you're in trouble now. <laughs> they hired me anyway. So then, um, you know, I had to get a, a clearance and had to go tell the U.S. Chamber that I was leaving. And then they were all like, well, gee, you know, a couple of months, there's going to be a presidential election, you know, Ronald Reagan's re-election. And if he doesn't get re-elected, you're out of a job. And I said, well, it's going to be a great experience. And, and uh, you, you know, you just can't walk away from it. So they brought me on. And now it's December uh, 26th, 1983. And Bushes had gone down to South Florida. And they flew me down on a commercial plane. And that was easy enough because I'd been flying all over the country with the chamber. And, and, but it was a little different when I landed. 
in Miami and White House advance person came up and, and greeted me, Hector Irastorsa, and uh, a Cuban-American guy, and he had an accent. And, you know, I was like, well, now, who are you? I didn't quite, and, and I said, you know, I'll carry my own bag. Just, just take me to where I need to go. And he took me to the Omni Hotel there in Miami and, and said, well, bushes are out on this island. Meet me in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and, and we'll get on a helicopter and I'll take you out. And I said, okay. And, and so I took all my stuff and, and fly out to the island. And, and it was just myself and the pilot. And he lands and the vice president comes out and greets me and says, well, come on in. I need to introduce you to Barbara Bush. And so I go into their house where they were staying and I had breakfast with George and Barbara Bush. My first minutes on the job, when he finished, we had to go up to Miami to do an event. President Bush loved his uh, cigarette race boats and, and where he was staying, they had some cigarette boats. And, and he said, look, you know, we're going to take these boats and drive up to uh, Miami why don't you get back in the helicopter and take pictures of us? And, and so I did that. And that was really easy for me because I'd done that in the Air Force and with feet hanging out the door and taking pictures. And Please tell us you were tethered in. <laughs> okay. I've done that on ski patrol where you're throwing the bombs out for avalanche control, but you got to be tethered in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to have the ND filter on your camera too, <laughs> right? So then we get to the hotel and, and we go to the hotel suite. There's all these people in there, and I knew the vice president, and you, nobody else. And you know, there were some Secret Service agents there, and some staff there. And and Jeb Bush, his son, came in, and Jeb and his wife Columba, they had just had a baby, uh, Jeb Jr. And he, Jeb was bringing Jeb Jr. Jebby, we call him, to meet his grandfather for the first time. And when that was taking place, I noticed all these people leaving the hotel suite and nobody's saying anything to me. It's like, well, am I supposed to leave or am I supposed to stay? I'm not quite sure, you know, nobody has said. But then I was thinking about the history of presidential photographers and Yoshi Okamoto was the first presidential photographer for President Johnson. Yoshi had total, full access to President Johnson. And you see great photos of President Johnson holding up his beagles by the ears and showing his scars. And I'm curious about how you're handling your film because we were on film canisters back then. Digital hadn't happened yet. So at the White House and actually at HUD before the White House, it, you know, it was all film. And at the White House, you'd get a schedule. Yeah, I was going to ask you who was in charge of assigning you. Was it the chief of staff? Or, well, at HUD, it would have been the secretary, secretary's office, right? You would just document. So the secretary's having a press conference or some mayors are coming in for a meeting and you would just go and cover it. No one would say, oh, come do this. So you could use your own judgment about what to shoot and how to shoot it because you were the only one doing it. You never shot anything. You always photograph stuff. Yeah, sorry. That, you're right. You're right. I keep telling people who travel, don't use that term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not around we're, the president. We're here to photograph. So I was asking you how the film got processed. So you would go and you would photograph this press conference or whatever it was. So at HUD, it all kind of fell on myself or Joe Barcia, the other photographer. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it was black and white. So we would 
go shoot it. We'd go back. We would process the film in our dark room, make prints, and deliver the prints. The negatives down the hall, we had an admin office, and they kept the negatives there. And then every five or six years, those negatives would go to the U.S. archives. At the White House, I was shooting color negative film. And Kodak, very color negative film, ASA 400. So at the White House, you'd get three schedules, a block schedule, which would show four weeks. You know, on the first week, it was a trip to Ohio and California. And the, the second week would be something else in third week. And then you get another schedule, which was a weekly schedule, which was tighter. And it would just be that week. And, and on that week, you'd have a cabinet meeting and a meeting with some congressional leaders and and maybe a trip and, you know, maybe a night at the Kennedy Center or whatever it was. And then literally every day, you got a little booklet that was about the size of your hand, which was minute by minute of everything the president was going to do that day. And everything that he did on the schedule was photographed. So you'd start out at seven o'clock in the morning with a CIA briefing and you'd go in and you'd photograph the CIA briefing. And if it was just the CIA briefer, so it was just the two of them in the Oval Office and you'd photograph that, that was the end of that assignment. But if the chief of staff or the director of the CIA would come in or sometimes the secretary of state, that was something different. So you would stay and photograph that. So the White House Communications Agency processed all the film. We would get these film envelopes and it would, you know, had a place to put your name and the date, then a, then a blank space for the caption. And you'd put in the date and the CIA briefing and you'd list whoever was there. And then the next meeting was maybe a White House senior staff meeting in the Roosevelt room. And so that would be another role of film. And, uh, you know, you'd list all the people that were there. So throughout the day, multiple times a day, the White House Communications Agency would send a military person to the office to pick up. We had a Halliburton case where we would put our film envelopes in. They would take that Halliburton case with the film to a Bowling Air Force Base. They would process the film. They would make a, an 8 by 10 color proof sheet, and they would send the proof sheet back and keep the negatives. So were you making selects? Yes. I mean, I picture you standing next to a light box if it's slides or if it's color neg. You've got your red grease pencil, right? Well, it was blue. Blue. You used blue. Okay. I used red. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is you'd circle it five or however many prints you needed. And they used to make large prints to decorate the White House. And they called them jumbos. So you made five and then a J for, I need five prints, five eight by 10 prints and a jumbo. Everybody knew what that meant. And then those proof sheets and those negatives all go to the presidential library. So today, 30 years later, somebody calls um, the research center at the Bush Library and they say, oh, I need an image of blah, blah, blah. And the archivist will go to the, to the book because all those proof sheets were put into a, a three-inch ring binder and, and, and sleeved up, and I guess, 100 pages of the ring binders. All your captions, too. 
so that's another step. So today, if somebody goes to the library, says, well, I, I need a photo of Bush and Gorbachev. So the archivist goes, and my grease-penciled mark is the one today that they'll select and send out. So the film envelopes would also come back, but they would go to the librarian, and the librarian would enter all of that information into a database. So today, that database is used by the U.S. archives. They say Bush Gorbachev. Well, you type in Bush Gorbachev, and every time Bush Gorbachev were together, those page numbers show up, and they can go to that book and say, oh, well, here's page 50,037, and then you go to that page, and oh, there's, you know, Dave marked that in your blue crease pencil, and, you know, that's how it goes. So that was pretty much the process. So I have a crazy question. Yeah. What about kill rights? Who would kill the ones that they never wanted published? I know in my side of the business in celebrity, you know, motion pictures, the celebrities have kill rights. And I know Barbara Streisand actually used to take a hole punch and punch through the negative to make sure nobody ever used it. Do the politicians, the presidents, worry about that or they just leave it to somebody else the way i understand it president trump did that but with me and all the other there's only been 12 people who've been the president's photographer i'm the fifth one out of the 12 and no one has ever punched negatives if there's one photo that was never used and it was it was a funny photo of mine the president of mexico gave President Bush an outfit like you'd see the matadors wear, you know, with all the silver down the legs and, and all the stuff and sombrero. And actually, I have that sombrero. <laughs> and he put that on and his secretary called me up to the Oval Office and, and there wasn't anything on the schedule. And I was like, well, what's going on? He said, just go in. And I walk in, there's the president standing there, you know, the sombrero on outfit and I took some photos. Those never saw the light of day. <laughs> I would say those would fall in the personal category, not for publication. You could go to the archives and see it, but I thought I'd made a print, but I don't I don't know that I have one. So I've always been curious about the whole fly in the wall aspect to doing this kind of photography. Did you shoot with long lenses? What kinds of meetings were you not allowed to go in? You're an outgoing person. You're very friendly, but you can also be very quiet. It's not easy to do that. Yeah, you know, it is tough. And I tend to be soft-spoken and I tend to be quiet. And your job is to document what's there. And you were with him in public and private. And in private, when his mother was on her deathbed in her home, he went to visit her out of respect. I didn't go in the house. And lo and behold, he called me in. He wanted me to take a one last photo with he and his mother. And the whole Bush family was there, you know, George W. and all his brothers and sisters and Jeb and everybody. And they're all saying, George, what are you doing? And I'm like, just horrified. But that's what he wanted. And he's the boss, my boss. And so I went in and took photos. And then when his daughter Doro had her first child, uh, we went to the hospital and he's the grandfather of the new baby and, and they wouldn't let him 
into the nursery to pick up the baby, but Secret Service pushed the door open a little bit. I leaned in behind the glass, took a picture of the baby, and he's watching me do this. And as soon as I step back, he says, well, thank you. We got to go. And so I got first picture of Sam LeBlanc in the nursery. When we would be with foreign leaders, sometimes there would be an awkwardness and he would introduce me as his friend. And that always kind of brought things down and made things a lot more comfortable. Well, it says to them, I trust this man. You know, he's part of my family. Yeah, well, you know, he actually said that this one time on the Today Show. They interviewed him about me, you know, which was kind of mind-boggling because he's president of the United States and I'm just a photographer. And in his part of the interview, he said that he and Mrs. Bush considered me a part of their family. And I appreciated that, but I was mindful, always mindful of the fact it was my job that put me in proximity and I wasn't really a family member. I think we had more than some of the other photographers, just because I was fortunate to have six years with him in his vice presidency before he became president. And when you work for the vice president, it's a much smaller staff. And we spent so much time together and we'd go up to Kenny Bunkport and go fishing together and just so many things. Uh, Go out to have dinner or, you know, I'd be over at their house for dinner. You were just there. In spite of all that closeness to me, was always Mr. President. And one morning we were at Kenny Bunkport, their house, and, and he was having the morning CIA briefing out on the back porch. And, and Mrs. Bush came out of the bedroom and she said, oh, good morning, Dave. Uh, have you seen George? And I looked at her like, George? I didn't know who George was. And she could see that I was thinking like, was that a Secret Service agent? And then she said, oh, you know, the president of the United States? <laughs> I said, oh, that guy. He's oh, right that over there. <laughs> oh, that George. Okay. <laughs> I have another question because I'm just thinking about all this stuff. You know, cameras make noise. You press the shutter, you hear a click, and you're covering some very important meetings, quiet moments. You didn't have a blimp on the camera. Were those old Nikons noisy at all? Because I know that some of the new ones are. Yeah, yeah, they were. You know, George Bush was a public figure. When you think about his career, one of the youngest Navy fighter pilots in World War II. He was an oil man in Texas. He was a congressman. He was our ambassador to the United Nations. He was director of the CIA. He was the head of the Republican National Committee. He was vice president of the United States. So with all of that, he'd been around photographers. And he understood what it was all about. One of my most famous photos is he and Barbara Bush in bed with their grandchildren. I love that picture. I shot that originally for Life magazine. Uh, Bobby Baker Burroughs was the photo editor at the time, and, and she wanted to send a, a photographer up to Kenny Bunkport. And he said, no, you know, we're up here on vacation. And we went back and forth a little bit. And at the time, Bobby didn't know me. And she says, well, okay, I'll let this guy, Dave Valdez, take some photos and we'll see what we get. And, and I talked to Mrs. Bush about it. And she said, well, you ought to just come over about six o'clock tomorrow morning and just see what happens. And, and so I, you know, I had access to the house and just walked in and stuck my head in the bedroom door. And there was George and Barbara Bush still in bed. And, and they said, well, come on in and go in. And then the grandchildren started coming in and they climbed in bed. And, and I shot some photos and we sent them off to, um, 
uh, Bobby Baker Burroughs at Life Magazine. She wound up running it two full pages in Life Magazine and then over the years ran it in Classic Moments in Life and The Best of Life and, and then The Best of Life for the past 75 years. And that photo hung in the Time Life building for 20 years. You must be so proud of everything you've done. Would you do it again if a president asked you or if you were offered an assignment? Would you do it again? I mean, because you have a very full life right now, which I want to talk about before we go too. you're doing some fun things. But what did you love most about it? And would you do it again? Now, you, you know, you know, it's a whole different deal. I really wish we would have had digital cameras because I actually, you know, we talked about the Nikons, but I also had to use a lot of flash photography, now, you know, because I'm shooting film and, and I need it to punch through. And, you know, the first time you walk into the Kremlin or the Vatican or, you know, the Great Hall of People in, in People's Republic of China, and you've got seconds to capture a moment and you're looking, what's the light? You know, you don't even know. And you've got to be dead on because there's no doing it over again. Uh, you know, maybe you had to be a little better photographer in those days. But Pete Suzu, who was President Obama's photographer, did an amazing job. He was 100% digital. When you're shooting digital, you know, you can up the ISO and kind of shoot through things and different angles that I would be restricted to because I was using bounce flash. And, you know, and I, I, I had to be mindful of, well, I can't stand too close to this thing or I'll burn it up. And if it's too far back there, the background's going to go black and there's all this stuff. And then, oh, I got seconds to figure all of this out because you also, you'd go on a trip and, you know, like I said, the White House Communications Agency, WACA, would process the film. So you go on a multi-country trip and they would have teams placed ahead so you would go to london and maybe go to paris and luxembourg or someplace and well that london team would go home first and so you would leave your film with them and they would process the film and you and you could call them up from air force one and say and call the photo lab and say we were with queen elizabeth in buckingham palace and there were some photos why don't you make a jumbo of some of those? You had a photo editor who would go through and say, okay, well, that one's a blinker, but the next frames, that's the one. And so when you return back from the foreign trip, those first two or three countries that you went to, those photos, those jumbos were already hanging in the White House. And that was kind of fun to see, you know, that shooting film and not knowing that you got it. Bill's character... <laughs> You can look, I know, but there's also something wonderful about film. A lot of people are going back to shooting film again. I'm actually pulling out the old cameras and shooting film again. You know, I just saw an article saying, well, should Canon and Nikon start making film cameras again? And, and it's kind of funny, uh, Nikon just the other day came out with a digital Z brand camera that physically looks like the old Nikon FM2. And it's kind of an interesting camera because it's got dials on the tops and, and it looks cool. So you were shooting 35 millimeter, right? You weren't shooting larger formats because the cameras would have been too big to carry around, right? The only time I used the large format, and that was a Hasselblad, so that was 120 film, uh, was the cabinet photo. And funny story with that, 
uh, when we did the cabinet photo, uh, George Bush had selected uh, Senator John Tower to be the Secretary of Defense. And all the cabinet members have been approved except for him. And we said, well, let's go ahead and do the photo. And, and so we go into the cabinet room. We take the photo with John Tower sitting there as Secretary of Defense. And well, then he wasn't confirmed. And so they, they then nominated uh, Dick Cheney to be Secretary of Defense. So we went back and we had to redo the photo with Dick Cheney sitting there. And Susan Biddle uh, was one of my photographers. She was helping me with that photo. And, and I had a Hasselblad and had 120 film with 12 exposures. I shot the 12 exposures and Susan was handing me the dark side to put in the back. And when I reached for it, I knocked it out of her hand and it fell under the table and it disappeared. And, and so I'm like, well, I got it. And so I had 12 frames and I figured in 12 frames, I only need one. And I said, we got it. And so then a couple of weeks later, I'm in the cabinet room on another assignment. I looked down and there was the dark slide. It had fallen right on the leg of the table. And wow. But, you know, I was lucky that photo gods were with me on that one. Today, you are still involved in a lot. You haven't slowed down at all. You started a film festival in Georgetown, right? Yeah, the Georgetown, Texas uh, Photography Festival. Yeah, that's exciting. You amaze me. You just never stop. So <laughs> we have to talk about Corvettes because we both love cars. I'm a week away from the Corvette Invasion, the largest Corvette show in the state of Texas. And I managed the Instagram account for the Corvette Invasion. Fun part of that is on Sunday, we rent the Circuit of the Americas racetrack. It's a the Formula One racetrack that was built in Austin, Texas, six or seven years ago. And, and all the guys want to go and drive their Corvettes on the racetrack. And I've done that a bunch of times, but I actually get, have more fun photographing the cars. So I've got a spot that I have gone to a couple of times and I just go up there and I, I have 500 millimeter lens and just set it up right on this one corner. And the cars just come right to me. And the last couple of years, the Wienermobile has come out. And that's been kind of fun to have the Wienermobile out on the track. I've shot the Carlisle Corvette show. No, it's not Carlisle. It's a lot smaller than Carlisle. The host, Sean Jones, has actually been invited to go to Carlisle. And, and he's gone. And I, actually, I used to go to it when I lived in Maryland, you know, because from Annapolis, Maryland, up to Carlisle is uh, you know, just a couple hours drive. And I used to go up there uh, every year and also go up to like Hershey, Pennsylvania to the big cars you know, they have up there. And it's kind of funny this year, like the Corvette Museum has come to our Corvette invasion, but everybody's having staffing problems and people just don't have the staff to go do those kind of things anymore. And the Corvette Museum was going to come out but they just didn't have the staff to come out there's a lot of local vendors that are coming out and and it's just fun the city of bastrop texas is the host they gave us their convention center and we use the convention center for the vendors and parking lot for the corvettes and july in texas it's you know usually a cool 100 degrees did you say cool <laughs> 100 degrees okay <laughs> You know, one thing I noticed covering the Corvette shows, 
these cars come from all over the world and people are so proud of them and they love to talk about their cars and the history of the car. There's a camaraderie on the streets with everybody watching and the people driving the cars. You must have so much fun with that. Yeah, you know, and this year, you know, with the new mid-engine C8 out, there's going to be a bunch of them there and we're going to park them all in one place because we see them around and a lot of our friends have them, but a lot of people haven't seen them and, and to see bunch of them together it's going to be really cool oh that's going to be fun now you have an instagram account for the corvettes too right corvette invasion on instagram is there a facebook page too uh yeah there's facebook page corvette invasion facebook page and i'll be posting photos that weekend they give me admin rights on the facebook page uh that weekend so i'll be posting a bunch of photos and i've been doing the instagram page for a couple of years now of course, I do the Instagram page for the Georgetown, Texas Photography Festival. And then my dog, Kyle Field, has his own Instagram page, which I have to manage for him. Tell me the name, your dog's name again. Kyle, K-Y-L-E-F-I-E-L-D, Kyle Field. Kyle Field is the name of the football stadium in Texas A&M University. And Kyle was born in College Station, where the Texas A&M is. And so the first owner of Kyle uh, was a Texas A&M student and she couldn't manage him. And, and their mascot is a collie and Kyle Field is a Sheltie. And the Shelties look just like collies, only they're like half size. And so Kyle got his name, Kyle Field. And then Kyle went to the student's mother and they moved to Tennessee and then they moved to Colorado and then they moved back home to Texas. The mother was getting married. She said, well, yeah, I just can't manage the dog anymore. And, and we had just lost a dog and they brought Kyle over so we could foster him for a little while. Well, you know, six months later, as his own Instagram page. And I'm doing that right now. I have a dog I'm fostering that I rescued who was really, he was attacked by a really big dog and hurt. And they were going to put him in the pond. I'm fostering. I don't know if you can hear her. She put her outside so be quiet she wants to come back in do you have another just couple of minutes because there's one thing i want to ask you about you've done a lot of volunteer work for habitat for humanity and you actually from what you told me were in washington dc on 9 11 right just a couple blocks behind the u.s capitol building so i worked at hud beginning then the u.s chamber then the white house then disney and then I got called back to Washington, D.C. in the George W. Bush administration as a political appointee working at HUD. So that was my second time at HUD. We were up on Capitol Hill that morning to do a habitat build. And I had two other folks with me. And I was driving and we didn't have the radio on. We're just driving up. And it was that between 9, 9.30 that morning. And we get to the site and... Everybody was just standing around and really seemed upset. And when we pulled up, they said, did you hear? Did you hear? We said, no, you know what? They said, well, you know, plane crashed into the World Trade Center two different times. And, and they say there's a plane heading to Washington, D.C. And so we rolled down all the windows and turned on the radio. So the car was surrounded by all these people. And while we're listening to the radio, we heard an explosion. And it was the plane hitting the Pentagon. You know, Washington, D.C. is kind of in a basin, and, and the sound just, like, fired across to us, and people just 
panicked and people were screaming and crying and, and you know the thought was that the plane was headed towards the Capitol building. We were just right there. Everybody just scattered. I had those two guys with me and I said, well, you know, their cars were back at, at the HUD building. And I said, well, let's just drive back down there and I'll drop you guys off and we'll go see what we need to do because we were right there by the Capitol. The Capitol police came running out and they were screaming at everybody saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. There's a plane headed for the Capitol and, and people were turning and driving on the sidewalks and, and they let every federal government employee off. So tens of thousands of people all hit the street at the same moment and everybody was calling everybody on their cell phones and nobody could get through on the cell phone because the line just shut down. And one of the guys I was with lived in Maryland and the other guy lived in Virginia. So we turned around and fought the traffic and drove out to Maryland and dropped that guy off. Then I had to drive from there all the way back to Virginia, but you couldn't go through D.C. So on Maryland 301, you go south and the main bridge over uh, the Potomac there was shut down. And about 50 miles south of there, there's another bridge that crosses the Potomac. And so we drove down there, crossed the Potomac, and then drove back up to Arlington, Virginia. And I dropped the guy off. Now I'm over there close to the Pentagon where you couldn't drive across there. So I had to drive all the way down southern Virginia across the river because I was living in Annapolis, Maryland. And it was nine or 10 hours before I got home. It was just crazy. And then the next day, what are we supposed to do? Nobody knew, can you go in? Is the city shut down? And I was in public affairs. And, and one of the big, big concerns we had is under the umbrella of HUD is the Federal Housing Administration, FHA. You know, and that's the FHA loans. And the federal government had to keep that process going. And so one of my jobs that time was also managing the hud.gov website and we had people all around the country but you know we had to get back so i actually went in to hold everything together i mean it was like a ghost town how are you feeling at that moment i mean what's going through your mind well yeah i mean you had no idea i mean the smoke was still going from the pentagon and having been in the military it was kind of interesting it seemed like People in the military, well, you know, we've got our job, we've got to do this until we get some other direction. And we had to keep our little portion of the federal government going. And we had to put out a lot of communication to the five or 6,000 people that worked at HUD. What are you supposed to do? And, and then to the field people and say, well, you know, we're still alive and we're still keeping these things going. And these things were canceled. It was crazy driving that day right after the Pentagon uh, got hit and being in Washington, D.C., in a car and just seeing the chaos that was going on. And, and the uh, police were coming out and they were literally in the streets just screaming, saying, go back, go back, turn around. There's a plane headed right here. And they're saying there's a plane headed right here at the Capitol building. Traffic rules and regulations went out the window. I mean, people literally went on the sidewalks and to get their cars turned around and to, to get out of there. And, and you're, you're like, this could be it. But, you know, we, we got out of there. And then 
federal government still had to continue working and, and there for months we would still travel and you'd get on Delta Airlines or American Airlines and go somewhere and there'd be five people on the plane. Some of the guys that I worked with at Disney photo were on a photo shoot in Chicago on 9-11 and they flew there and when they got there they rented a car uh, so they could go on and do their assignments and uh, all the flights were canceled so they just drove home from Chicago down to Orlando in their rental car the only thing they could do. David you have chronicled so much of our history You've been involved in so many different things. You have shot for many, many different organizations. What do you want people to most remember you for? Three generations from now, if you could hope for them to say something about David Valdez, what would it be? Well, you know, being one of the presidential photographers is extremely unique. And actually, I was only the second guy to head up photography for the Walt Disney Company. A lot of people like bypass that part of my career, but that was a pretty big deal too. I'll never forget those guys at the archives coming out and wanting to meet me. As a photographer, you know, you build a legacy. And I always think about that, the legacy, you know. When I talk to photographers about that, it's like, well, what are you going to do with your stuff when you're gone? Do your relatives even know that you have this stuff? I've made it abundantly clear to the Briscoe Center books that I've had stuff published in. And, you know, there's a guy right now, Charles Denner, who's uh, working on a David Valdez book. And, and I have you know, tons of stuff down here. And in the other room, we have the presidential suite, which most people just call the spare bedroom. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of memorabilia in there. And, and one of my prized possessions is a handwritten note from President Bush thanking me for helping him get elected president. And along with that, he said, and here's a wooden gavel made from the wood of the inaugural platform. And I have that frame. And, you know, that's, that's really a, a special, unique thing to have. And I've been fortunate enough in my career to have interns and, and young folks that I've worked with. And it's great to see how they've gone on to do other things, you know, how, how they've blossomed in their photography career. And, and I see all those people as little gems in my life that I was able to touch and point off in a, in a direction that helped them and kind of lead by example and never get a big ego about yourself. And I know it's easy to do that. I was born in Alice, Texas. And how is it that David Valdez wound up at the White House and think about that. I remember right after Iraq invaded Kuwait when I found myself alone in the Oval Office with uh, two other White House staff people and we kind of looked around at each other and said, you know, maybe we should pray for the president and for the military and for the people of Kuwait. And we did that. And, you know, when I sometimes think about, you know, how did David Valdez from Alice, Texas wind up there? at the White House. And, you know, I think about that moment. It was like, you know, maybe it was that moment that all these other things led me to be there for that. In terms of the legacy, I don't much think about it other than I helped some young folks along the way get into some pretty amazing careers. 
with their photography. And I'm really proud of that. Proud to be a part of the exclusive Residential Photographers Club. The name, David Valdez, will always be associated with that and always be a part of American history. And, you know, 100 years from now, when somebody's studying all of this and how it all got, got started, you know, I'm only the fifth person to have ever done it. Right at the transition from film to digital, been blessed in my life uh, to have had the opportunity to do a lot of the things that I've done and continue to seek out things in Georgetown, Texas, where I live now. Just got put on the arts and culture board and we're involved with putting up murals and, and sculptures around the city. We're going to start an art festival in October. And I stepped up and said, well, I'll be on that team. Who knows what that's going to be? It's wonderful. People ask me to do interviews and, and that's always fun to, to reminisce and share with other folks. And I hope that people enjoy hearing my stories and, and realizing, you know, the, the history that we get to document. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget being with the president when the military aide came up to him and said, Mr. President, the Soviet Union has collapsed. We were out on a golf course up in Kennebunkport, Maine when that happened, to be there at the beginning of the first Gulf War, and to be a part of when the United States went in and removed Manuel Noriega from Panama, to be there when the Berlin Wall came down. It was pretty amazing. And, you know, I'll never forget being in this Kremlin and President Gorbachev and President Bush were signing some nuclear arms agreements. And we're walking out of the Kremlin and we're going down this one hallway and President Gorbachev says, wait, I need to go show you something. We turned around went down this other hallway and we get to this room where there's two big gold doors and he pushes them open and he shows the president the czar's chapel. So all those years of communism, they never removed czar's chapel out of the Kremlin. And Gorbachev was proud to show that. But I'll never forget also being outside the Kremlin on Red Square during a funeral of one of the leaders, I think it was in Dropoff. It's a military procession on, and they're open casket and they're getting ready to close the casket and bury him in the wall there on the, at the Kremlin. And moments before they closed the casket, his wife made the sign of the cross. And we're standing there with Margaret Thatcher and President Mitterrand and Yasser Arafat and Fidel Castro and we all see that. And it was like, wow, did you just see the leader of an atheist country, communist country, and the guy's wife is a believer. Those are precious times. You know, you get to see those things and, and just be a part of that. Where do you want people to go to learn more about you? What site do we want to take them to? I know at the Briscoe Center for American History, they have a lot of stuff about David Valdez. I have davidvaldezphotography.com. I have some photos on Flickr, David Valdez USA, and on my Instagram, David Valdez USA. Please like and follow. You know, those are the places where I put a lot of photos and have photos. And, and there's a National Geographic film called The President's Photographer. I can hardly wait to read the book about you that is in progress right now. And David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. And I hope everybody listening really looks further into this. And we are going to be following you. I'd love to have you back on again 
in a few months or next year, we're just going to make you part of the family of our listenership family now. I encourage everybody to go. I love my OWC products. Uh, can't beat them, that's for sure. You use the drives to keep your stuff archived and working, right? They're solid. I've had other drives and I'm always like worried about not buying a new drive to replace it because I've had it for a while. And it's like with the OWC, it feels like I don't worry anymore. I've been speaking with David Valdez, world-renowned photographer, one of the very few presidential photographers, and someone who has given his whole life to documenting history, documenting stories, and humanity all around him. David, I'm sure we'll be talking with you again. Thanks again. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. My name is Serena Catania. I'm the host of OWC Radio, and I just want to thank you for being here. And everybody, remember what I always tell you, get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today. Thank you.